This is the Bristol Cable. We exist in a world where there's constant threats and reminders that violence can be perpetrated against you. And then it's like, well, that's just bad apples, etc. And yet there is constant policy and media discussion about restricting potential violence that you might commit, that you are marked out as inherently violent. This is a live recording of our speaker series where we speak to prominent writers, academics and activists from across the UK, putting the cable's work in the national conversation. In this event, comedian June Tuesday sits down with Sean Fay, a writer, presenter and author of the award-winning Sunday Times bestseller, The Transgender Issue, to talk about trans liberation and diversity journalism. So it's been two years since your book has come out now, just over. Mm-hmm. Um, how are we doing? How are you doing? Are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> um, what question? I, right, so I, I'm trying to keep the mood positive this evening. However, um, I have to be realistic too. Yeah, two, two years since uh, the book was published and actually the majority of it um, was written in 2020, it's quite funny because we're seeing all of the like the COVID inquiry now, which obviously is um, going to go on as long as the pandemic, and then they're going to like whitewash it, and everyone's going to get off scot free. But like, it is bringing back the memories of that first lockdown when I was really working on the book. And so, really, if we, I mean, I did update it right up until about six months before publication. But really, if we're talking about the changes, you know, we're, we're now like three years on from where I wrote the book. Where are we? <laughs> I think it's just safe to say that it, it has got worse than this. The, like, you know, when you write a political nonfiction book, you accept that you are taking like a, a snapshot in time. I knew that probably that snapshot was going to be of a situation that was going to deteriorate from the perspective of trans people's well-being and liberation. In some arenas, I've been shocked by the speed with which it's got worse and it's gotten much worse than I might have predicted because I'm hopeful um and yeah in in other arenas i guess it's that what what i was highlighting in the book are are situations that have just simply exacerbated because the underlying causes haven't haven't been remedied um because funnily enough that's not been a priority of like the tories or or even labor um and so and so they remain um where am i at i mean i think on a personal note i think one of the things that to be a, a little bit hopeful was that I, I remember when I was writing the book and even right when it came out, my biggest fear was that people were going to be really apathetic. Like two years out, having to, had some distance when you're so immersed in something, I've genuinely been shocked um, in a good way. Uh, I guess the readership that has been built up around the book, how diverse that readership is, and now a couple of years out, because at first there's a group of people that you kind of know are going to buy the book and are kind of signed on to its, its vibe anyway. Um, but what what I think happens in, in within about two years is you start to see where it travels by word of mouth to the audience who perhaps aren't so convinced or need or need a tool in order to better understand it. And that's kind of who they were, who the book was written for already. And I have seen it start to reach those people and heard about it reaching those people. And that's quite an exciting thing because, um, yeah, that you, you create a kind of galvanized community around a piece of, of work like that. For me personally, just to finish, because it's a really long answer, but it is a, it's a big question. Uh, for me personally, I think a huge change um, 
came from like the 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 sort of privilege and power of being heard as a trans person in the UK is still something that I think I've settled into. I think it overwhelmed me a little bit, to be honest, when the book first came out, because um, trans people, trans women are very rarely given platforms in the UK. Um, I mean, no one really, I mean, gave it to me. I actually had to kind of take it. But um, I, uh, I guess I've, I've grown into that slightly. Um, you do create your own platform to a certain degree with a book and it becomes a little bit unavoidable. Um, and yeah, I'm still negotiating that, but I think I certainly psychologically have benefited from the sense of like, I wrote this piece of work about things that I was very angry about and I have a sense of being listened to uh, and I see how much of a balm that is. And I, I still think that's something that a lot of trans people are deprived of. Mm. Um, great, thank you. Uh, it really was um, and is such a fantastic book. Uh, I, I really got so much out of it. I think a lot of people here uh, who have read the book have also got a lot of it, a lot of stuff out of it. Um, I know you've answered this question to death, but uh, I think um, the, the thesis statement of the book, the book, uh, the statement that you start with is uh, the liberation of trans people would improve the lives of everyone in our society. Um, even though you've said about this before, could you maybe rehash it? Because I think it really does contextualize so much of what we're going to be talking about. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, I mean, starting with that, that, uh, sentence is it's provocative because as I say what I was aware of I guess is people would come to a book like this perhaps being like I want to help the trans people and I've got to learn and what I wanted uh, was I wanted to contradict right from the very first sentence the way in which trans people have been presented by more mainstream media which is that actually you kind of if you're if you're not a trans person and you only consume mainstream, a lot of mainstream media in this country for the last few years, what you've probably uh, been presented with is a view of the world in which trans people are kind of at best a helpless minority, but at worst a kind of uh, a nuisance or an irritant or even, you know, in some cases, a, a malevolent force um, that are somehow taking something away or complicating things, you know, that it's a mob, angry, woke, whatever. And um, what I want to do is turn that on its head and not just say you need to be kinder to this poor marginalized group, but also um, something a bit beyond that, which is liberation politics, which is actually that if you're talking about a, trans people just happen to be a group who are marginalized by the gender system that we have, the way of, of doing gender and sex that we have in a very acute way, but actually if you start to look at what would improve the conditions for trans people, it, it, it brings in the whole of society. And I wanted to also reflect, I think, that most liberation movements, whether they are around gender, race, um, class, would tend to argue, at least the ones that I agree with, tend to argue that if you take the most marginalised and um, disempowered and abject and um, oppressed people in a society and you start to improve conditions for them, you transform society as a whole, which is a little bit different to like liberal politics where it's often looking at like having certain members of minorities in positions of power, which as we're probably seeing around the world isn't always, doesn't always trickle down as we're promised. Hmm. Um, so you, you mentioned the idea of trans people often being framed as uh, maybe a malevolent force. Um, 
within the society and the media. Um, and I, I want to sort of needle in on that because we, we do see like just bizarre ideas around trans people of like, oh, trans women are invading chess now. And uh, <laughs> I, as much as I, I, I love that uh, <laughs> engagement for our community, I, I, I don't... <laughs> I don't necessarily think it's the most helpful. Um, e even the sort of uh, media portrayals that are more historical and the ones that are maybe voyeuristic, the ones that expect trans people to uh, bleed and showcase their trauma. Uh, how, how do we push away from that and more towards the things that would actually be helpful within media representation of trans people, talking about maybe our healthcare needs or um, how we combat um, harassment and workplace aggression, that sort of thing? Yeah, big question. I mean, <laughs> uh, I was just laughing again at the memory of the chess thing. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, there's, there's that. I mean, I suppose there's a question here of media agendas and the, and the trouble is, is I think uh, there's, there's a bigger rot afoot in um, media than we, than just this, this particular uh, arena. We are in an uh, era of huge disinformation, of polarization, it's getting worse. It runs the full gamut. I think like, you know, right now we're seeing it with regards to the representation, for example, of the Palestinian people. Um, there are like, you know, groups for whom the media has never really, you know, mainstream media has never really worked to amplify their voices or their humanity, but rather done the opposite and actually provide fertile grounds for dehumanization. So I think it's first to say is that it's not exclusive to trans people. And there is something there is a there is a larger problem in who who media serves uh, in a capitalist society. I, f I find it quite annoying when there are a lot of journalists who are very self-regarding about the fact that they are there to bring kind of truth and justice to society without any kind of critical reflection on their own profession. So it's, it's tough because I actually don't know that within, within present media structures, I think there are there is a difficulty because media agendas are focused, I think, on sensationalism. And when you get to a minority group like trans people, how small they are, there'll be a belief that like how long you wait for healthcare is boring. And um, yeah, and that, um, that these more systemic issues, that they aren't worth probing. And there is, for example, I, I guess it's worth providing some context because before I wrote the book, I had worked in in media as a comment journalist and that's part of the reason I wrote the book but even yesterday which it happens less and less now because I I tend to just give them quite short shrift but yesterday I got approached to go on like a BBC Radio 4 program and again it was going to be a debate about trans youth and their access to healthcare. and they always sort of subtly put in a little clause in the email that's kind of like we'll have people from opposing sides, which basically means they're just going to put me up against a transphobe and expect me to debate it. There's that real fetishization, but that's for entertainment. That's not to actually... The idea that... I mean, like, one, you know, I'm a trans adult. There's a limit. You know, I might have done professional work in terms of understanding the experience of trans youth in 2023, but I'm not a trans youth in 2023. So there's already kind of a... The idea of two adults and the idea that I'm... I'm sort of like one person on one side and then there's someone who's literally nothing to do with the trans community, has never been a trans youth and is just like self-appointed, that we are of like equal value in this discussion or debate and that debate is the appropriate format. That's a huge problem. I feel like I'm ranting a bit, but, um, <laughs> but like, so yeah, there's a, there's, a pro there's, <laughs> there's a problem with media agendas. I want to give an example as well, just for people who haven't thought about this. 
So like probably most people here will have seen in the national news at the moment, and I, I do want to mention this, is like the horrific case of the murder of Brianna Jai, a 16-year-old trans girl in Warrington. And, and there are lots of factors. It's an ongoing case, and I kind of know from media training that you have to be, be careful around that. But what, one thing I want just people to reflect on for a second, because I've been thinking about it a lot, and more details are emerging every day. They're absolutely awful is we have been, certainly for someone like me, for the last like five years, I've been reading various media permutations from government, um, potential trans guidance in school, all predicated, and it's even worse in the US, on the idea that transgender girls are a threat to um, their classmates, to other people, that there have to be repressive measures, that there, is, there needs to be policy review, that there needs to be constant media discussion about trans girls' right to exist in their school, in their youth clubs or whatever. And here we have like a case of, like an awful case uh, of violence against a trans girl. And what we're quite quickly seeing is a sensationalization of that. We're seeing the Daily Mail, one of the most appalling and disgusting publications in this country, but also specifically towards trans communities, doing like a, like a sort of true crime podcast about it to sensationalize this murder, to make it ostensibly uh, about two children and not the society that produced them. And by the two children, I mean the two children who've been accused of the killing. Um, no adult responsibility to, no, no social context. I would just encourage people to think for a second, had a trans girl been violent um, towards cis children, whether or not that still that, whether that would be confined to the, that individual child? No, it wouldn't. Um, there is something there about the inherent guilt that trans people are marked out with in the media compared to cis people who just get to be a person and get to be individuals. And if cis people do something wrong or cis people are violent, and I think trans people in the room probably will agree with me, we exist in a world in which it's like, it's, it's, it's just a, I mean, can I just swear? It's like a mindfuck to be in a, in a world in which what you see, the overwhelming evidence is, is that you exist in a society where there's constant threats and reminders that violence can be perpetrated against you. And then it's like, well, that's just bad apples, etc. And yet there is constant policy and media discussion about restricting potential violence that you might commit, that you are marked out as inherently violent. And, um, and that's an example to me of huge media distortion and moving the goalposts and, and a lack of respect. So I think to finally answer the question in terms of like, what do I think can be done about that? I mean, like personally, I've tried to create, like, for example, I tried to create a tool that like, I have some faith that younger journalists, the fact that there has been a huge uh, cultural shift is that I do think that they're in younger media, newer media, there is much more of an understanding like look this is an oppressed group i don't think they're all, like i don't think all young media is doing a great job but i think they understand that uh that there's been huge injustice around trans people and i'm kind of hopeful that we can like be more collaborative in future mm. um interesting Based on that idea of young media, I, th I think I, I'm going to be able to anticipate your answer based on mm. the book. Um, this is a common refrain that a lot of people uh, like to pose it, which is that trans rights, especially like trans rights within reference to how we talk about things in the media, um, exist on a 20-year time lag. So the way that gay rights were talked about 20 years is how trans rights are talked about now. And in 20 years from now, people are going to look back and be uh, embarrassed about the way that we talked about trans rights. Do you think that that sort of framing 
is necessarily true? And do you think that we are moving towards a greater positivity in any sense with trans representation in the media? I mean, I think it's a cop-out, that one too, isn't it? Because it's like, you know, like, it's one of those things, yeah, like, I mean, I, I've heard that and I do discuss it in the book, but it's a huge cop-out and it's a way to comfort yourself, like, oh, society's just inherently getting better. Like, one, it's not. Like, look at the US and, like, Roe versus Wade. Like, something like that, where you can actually see that, like, rights can be quite quickly taken away as soon as they were given. Um, and there is a very committed, um, I've just finished, it's out next year, J Judith Butler's next book, um, and it's their first uh, non-academic book. Um, professor, professor, uh, they're a professor of gender studies at California. I mean, like, I'm not gonna explain to trans people who Judith Butler is, but for the cis people. <laughs> anyway, their new, their, new, their new book is like, basically about how there is a global anti-gender movement that like runs from like the far right in Hungary through to the Christian lobby groups in the US through to like gender critical feminism in the UK. There is a committed movement that is, you know, is not going to go away anytime soon. So to say, oh, there's a 20 year time lag, it's all gonna sort itself out. Also, I mean, like I'm 35, like, you know, I was here 20 years ago, but do you know what I mean? It's like, well, I, I like, for example, I grew up under Section 28, which was, was were, you know, I, I went to school in Bristol. Um, I literally just did an event for the um, anniversary of Section 28. And I think it's really important to, you know, only as someone in my mid-30s have I really fathomed in therapy that, like, actually that something like that, like, had a huge effect on me and continues to. Like, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing that if you... And what we're seeing now, particularly with regards to trans young people, right? Like, to say, oh, it's a 20-year time lag, what a failure of those, of those young people. Like, this idea that they're just going to get over it. Like, no, actually, the harm, it, 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 it minimises the real harm. And it sort of feels like it's a sort of in inducement to minimise your anger at the real harm being done, particularly to trans youth. Now, um, do I... Th like, on the other hand, do I think things may well improve. Well, I think what we, what my personal observation is, is that these things aren't linear. It's not either or. What I would say is, is that we were just talking like backstage before this. Like I grew up, I just said, I grew up in Bristol. When I was like, like living here and growing up here, there were no, like I very rarely, I think I saw one visible trans person ever. And it was because like people I was at school with were like making fun of this trans person in the street. Like where I see now, like when we're talking about the, you know, hearing like Rue talk about the, the queer community in Bristol and the things that are going on here, like that's a huge change in like, you know, I'm not old. So like it's, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a, um, you know, in my, in my lifetime. So what you have in, I think in reaction to some of the hostility we've seen is like a huge redoubling of like, of community, of activism at, at like, at grassroots level. Um, and I also think trans people are making huge inroads in terms of culture and stuff like that. Like my friend Monroe Bergdorf is like making huge like uh, steps in the world of fashion, for example. You have like Yasmin Finney and Doctor Who. Like again, these things when I, like it's, it's no small thing. Like representation is not everything, but I think it's always easy to sort of throw out representation. But actually when you're a kid, it's actually pretty important. And I think that's something that's like shifted hugely. Um, I I don't I think there's a huge amount of like progress and visibility and like trans community that can't be put back in the bottle no matter how hard government and right wing media tries. And so what I do think there's a lot of hope. I do think there's like a net trajectory of, of positivity. 
but it doesn't mean that it's not going to be like a hard fight at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I completely agree. I think the 20-year the time lag is, is such a cop-out. It also negates the modern experiences of trans people. Like, yeah. I, I don't think they had TikTok in 2002. <laughs> uh, um, and the, the way that we perceive trans people in the arts is uh, remarkable and so fundamentally different to the way that we perceive and talk about trans people in nearly any other sphere of conversation. Um, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you, I know you're not really on social media so much anymore, but it is a um, remarkable tool that is sort of more modern, that does have a lot more access to trans people. So, so many more trans people are now able to talk and express their own stories, uh, which is delightful. On the other side, anyone with a phone can talk to those trans people and you know with the case of Dylan Mulvaney and but like sometimes they're not very nice when they talk um how, how do you think social media is taking a role in the way that we talk about trans people in 2023 oh I mean I well the trouble is the social media I think is um you you can't say it's either good or bad it's a, it's, a, it's an uh, inescapable part of life now um, I think it's a huge, like, you know, a huge, um, it's, it'll be hugely naive to say, we've just got to get meta to like improve their guidelines. So they're not going to do it. You know, these liberal solutions, I think that were like perhaps like five or, or 10 years ago, even would people thought were going to be the answer. I think what we have to see is that like what we're seeing, for example, with X, formerly Twitter, um, <laughs> is that what is what we're seeing and i think it was something that we'll see as well with with ai and the way that like you know these these technologies that we thought perhaps had quite a lot of radical potential they are being concentrated in the hands of like 15 year old boys in the bodies of like adult men who are billionaires and um subject to their whims like elon musk you know for example is just like just one day bought twitter and and undid the bannings and the restrictions of loads of the most vicious transphobic accounts that had been banned on that platform for like over five years. So I think the thing is, is that I think we have to recognize that social media, you know, is, has huge potential for, um, for, for communicating, you know, I think a lot of trans people now, if you ask trans people under the age of 25, like how did they work out they were trans? How did they kind of find community? It's gonna be via social media, right? But I think what we have to think in our own communities is about thinking about harm reduction, taking it seriously. We're still in the kind of the Wild West days of the internet and social media still. But I think what, where there's a conversation growing, you know, is around protection, around harm reduction, around kind of, um, around self-care and around kind of community organizing that, that treats the online space as a real space. Um, and I also think there's something about thinking more collaboratively about how we support each other online too, because one of the dynamics, I've, I've certainly experienced it to a very small degree, but you mentioned Dylan Mulvaney. I think one of the things is that, is that social media creates these kind of like, I don't know, like particularly with trans communities, I think there will be people who have larger social media followings who get like a huge amount of benefit from that in terms of the fact they're listened to, but also they get like a huge amount of hostility and very little support. Um, and I think we have to think more in a more kind of community-based way about the mental health toll and the ways in which we project onto people um, who happen to have like large platforms. Like actually several 
100,000 million TikTok followers if you're just like a trans teenager in your bedroom doesn't actually give you that much power. It doesn't actually give you that much protection. And, you know, I think I think it's something that that we need to get better at. Yeah. Um, do I sound really old? I think I do. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, I'd just like to hop forwards to healthcare, if you don't mind. Um, so a quote from the book is that in the 2020s, timely access to transition-related healthcare will be the most pressing issue facing trans communities in, in Britain. How are we feeling <laughs> about that? I mean, um, as an example of uh, what I would say is... Uh, quite horrifying is Liz Truss recently said that under 18s shouldn't have access to trans related healthcare. Do you have any sort of comment on where we are now? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll start with this. I'm sorry, it's a heavy example. But like, um, in the last like, uh, 18 months, we've had two coroners court verdicts in the UK. Um, one in inquest into the death of a trans woman called Alice Lippman, another into a, uh, the death of a trans woman, um, called Sophie Gwen Williams, um, who were both young trans women who took their own lives. And in both cases, the coroner's verdicts have found that like one of the contributing factors to their deaths was uh, the failure in trans health care, that both of them were on the waiting list. In part, the mental health impact of waiting um, for years, being unable to access the treatment they needed, you know, contributed to... To, to their deaths. And I, and, I, and I mention that because I think it's really important to stress that this isn't, uh, this isn't just like we're, we're imagining the worst case scenario. For some people, the worst case scenario is already here. And that, those are the ones we know about where a, where a coroner's court has, has agreed to it based on like the evidence, you know, the high bar of evidence for that and that they, the families have managed to get the right lawyers and the right evidence in place. So Lord knows how many examples there would be where we won't find out. And I mention that because I think, yeah, I think it is such a pressing concern for so many people. Um, and I think trans healthcare, when we talk about it holistically as well, when we talk about mental, I think it's about thinking about it in, uh, holistically, that um, when we think about trans healthcare, probably a lot of people are thinking, well, it's the waiting list to get hormones and surgery. Um, it is, but that interplays with mental health. That interplays actually with chronic health, like chronic health conditions as well. There's lots of there's quite a lot of evidence to suggest that trans people disproportionately live with like chronic physical health problems as well. And, and I think that's like one of the yeah. I think it's one of the biggest priorities. I think we again heard about self medding, and I think that's that's something that like pretty much anyone that I transitioned um, in the mid to 2010s, and I think anyone that I know that medically has transitioned after me in the UK has probably had some experience of self-medication and you know for, for some people that, that makes it work and I'm not going to be down on self-medication at all but of course there are risks with that um, not everyone has the harm reduction information they need and there's just a huge failure there like the NHS guidelines are supposed to be that you have 18 weeks and I just want to say as well this is the point that I make and you, you asked me about earlier about um this trans liberation struggle and how it improves the lives for everyone. Because some people, their sort of gut, like dickish reaction when you talk about this is like, well, I'm on the healthcare waiting list for this and I'm on the healthcare waiting list for this. Like we're all not getting it. And that's that kind of scarcity mentality that like we've been encouraged through like now well over a decade of austerity measures and, and the kind of slow selling off of the NHS 
to be conditioned to think in that way that it's like, well, you know, I'm not getting this. So why are trans people complaining? No, you, everyone should be getting like there is the money for, the, for this to be properly serviced. And I think I think that's a huge missing part. The other thing I want to say as well for people about trans healthcare is some people think it's just a question of funding. It's not. There's a question about how trans people are treated by medical professions. Trans people, and I outline this in the book, have a long history of being pathologized as psychiatrically ill. That's kind of where how trans healthcare emerged. How, you know, it wasn't this kind of um, liberation, you know, gender free for all. It was not. It was not radical. It was kind of like oh, this is a really disturbed population and, and certain psychiatrists should control, you know, who is allowed to transition, who isn't. But, like, we have to allow some of them to have access to this healthcare because um, otherwise they sort of present a, actually a threat to gender, the gender binary. And the problem with that is that even to this day, a lot of the clinic structures, particularly in England, Wales is better, but, like, in England the huge cues, the impossible cues is through this system that like insists on having you sit down for a, an interview with like two to three gender clinicians where they're like, what were your sexual fantasies as a teen? Like, you know, like, like I had to rate my ex-boyfriend out of 10 in bed to a gender clinician, which I did accurately. I won't, I won't reveal it here. Um, but like, but like that's the sort of pressure you'll put under. I did do it accurately because... I felt like, you know, a pressure. This person is a, a gatekeeper that has the right to interrogate me about all aspects of my life and because he has something I want. That's something that's really disturbed anyway. And that's something, so, so for me, it's not just a case. I just don't want anyone who, who isn't aware of, of trans healthcare infrastructure to think well, it's just a case of NHS funding. It's actually a case of dismantling the system as it currently is and, and treating it much more on a basis that trans people... You know, if whether they want to seek hormone treatment, then they should be able to seek hormone treatment. It's not a psychiatric issue. There's no need to have like a, a an assessment about what's going on with your thoughts and feelings about sex and gender. Um, and that's a huge part that's missing. Mm. Mm. Um, one thing you've talked about, and this isn't something that you've just mentioned in the book, it permeates uh, so much of your writing and it has done for so many years, is that when you talk about trans issues, you mention the fact that you're a trans woman, but you also mentioned the fact that you are a trans woman with certain privileges. So you're white, middle-class, Oxford-educated, and you cannot be the sole representative of everyone uh, who is trans. Um, given this is a discussion about the Bristol Cable and trans people in media and trans writing, I just wonder if you have any thoughts on uh, the idea of decentering oneself as a writer in journalistic reporting in general. Oh, um, yeah, well, it's an interesting one. I mean, I think the thing is, is that I think, uh, I mean, like, so around trans writing, let's say this, um, the trans academic Vivian Namaste, I, I, I quote her in the book, says that there's like an autobiographical imperative around like trans writing that historically trans, especially trans women, but all trans people, but like trans women in particular have only been given like a, a, a platform to speak if you, it's kind of like a show and tell. Like you talk about enough of your like surgeries and your trauma and et cetera, and then we might give you the space to speak. And I wanted to, with the transgender issue, kind of say, I'm not going to do that because yeah, well, one it is because of those privileges, right? Is that like actually 
I had access at that particular point when I got this book deal in 2018 or whatever, like there were certain reasons why I had access to a, a literary agent, a um, potentially a publishing deal at Penguin, et cetera, at that time. And they are connected intimately to, um, to the way in which I move through the world uh, and the way that that will resemble a lot of the people in the publishing industry. Um, but I... Yeah, I wanted to decenter myself partly because, yeah, it's not very interesting. No one needs to hear, hear about my story, particularly around, around transness. Um, but also because I, this, sound, this could sound a bit grandiose, but I, I wanted to like push forward with what is possible for trans writers to do in nonfiction, which is to not have to do this like huge confessional thing about your own transition in order to make some political points as an aside, if you can. Um, I wanted to say, like, no, one of the things that's, that really annoys me, actually, is that, like, why can't I? And I, I've only done this partially successfully, because if you read mainstream rev reviews of the book, they're obsessed with putting in biographical detail about me. Like, they're determined to. Like, the, the Financial Times was like, she hasn't said which surgery she's had. It's like, no, I haven't. <laughs> um, and, and, and it's because there, there's that real uh, insistence on trying... You know, when I did, um, I did BBC Hard Talk which is like a, it goes out like at 1 a.m. here, but it goes out on BBC World News. And Stephen Sacker is this really respected journalist that's like, uh, I think interviewed like Henry Kissinger. Um, <laughs> and, other, and other people, you know, like, so, like immediately says to basically asks me, have you ever felt suicidal? And it's like the fact that you feel like you're entitled to ask me that, like that sort of question when I've written a book that like is about um, a minority group that I happen to belong to, but I've done like some serious research, Stephen. Like the fact that like the fact that you feel entitled to ask me that is it shows this preoccupation. So I wanted, I guess, what I wanted to do was yes, it's partly because I'm 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 a trans person that has some huge privileges, and I I don't feel like my my experience needs to be centered in in the particular moment in which that book comes into, but also just like yeah, it's about this, and this is for any minority writer, particularly in nonfiction is you're not seen as objective. And again, sorry, I, I, I keep mentioning, I, I can't help but mention, like, it, I keep thinking about it with Palestinian writers right now, is that the way um, Palestinian writers, academics, are sort of treated as like they're not impartial because they happen to belong to the oppressed group. Like, that, this is something, you know, that, that, that affects, like, that's part of being a minority and trying to make work, trying to make literature, trying to make art, is the fact that, you're not treated as a sort of artist or an authority in the same way that the sort of cisgender, white, able-bodied male writer critic is. And so I, I guess what I was trying to do in decentering myself was to push forward the fact that, like, you don't always have to speak personally and with candor because there's a power dynamic there too so i'm really ranting again there's a power <laughs> dynamic there isn't there about who like i do others writing right like my next book is actually quite confessional but the thing is is that that's it's confessional about the things that i've selected on my own terms as someone that's an established writer it's very different to what was happening to me at the beginning of my like journalistic career when i was quite early in my transition and a bit naive and and p publications would say like oh, well, we'll give you a commission if you write about what it's like, you know, taking hormones on International Women's Day. And you'd be like, okay. Um, <laughs> like, same as every other day. Um, but I, <laughs> but I, but like, I, I fell into that trap a few times. And, um, 
and and that's something that yeah I wanted I wanted to create space as well for trans. I'm I'm really concerned about trans writers that come after me, particularly in the UK. There are very few like trans women political nonfiction writers who I see who are younger than me. There are a few, but um, but yeah, it's about trying to create space for people to be able to do what they want without having to do this kind of confessional mm. show and tell that I described. Mm. Um, drawing to the close with the last two questions, uh, one is you, you have a point that you mentioned in the book that I found particularly powerful, and it was the idea of trans women within the context of feminism, because you talk about it as um, so often in feminist discussions, you have trans women who are either being thought about as people to exclude by a certain uh, charming group, or trans people who were invited in very politely by kind cis people, kind cis feminists. Yeah. And the, the point you sort of made was that it's not about being invited in. It's you are a woman, you are involved in feminism, you are a feminist. You can assert yourself in that without asking for permission to be there. Um, I, I just wanted to kind of get your take on trans women within feminism and the feminist discussions around that in Britain today. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think I think it's not just, I mean, I will answer about trans women specifically, but it's about all trans people. I guess like what I, I again, for people who haven't read the book, is um, I feel like feminism is kind of like, it has like peaks and, and troughs, doesn't it? Like it feels like there was a period like 10 years ago where a certain version of feminism kind of very like welcome to the stage Hillary Clinton vibes. Like that, that had like this quite capitalist, consumerist and Beyonce doing the like the self-titled album and being like, you know, I'm a, I, you know, I'm a feminist. This kind of quite like, uh, like a liberal kind of feminist seemed to be really, feminism seemed to be really, really popular. And now it feels again, like feminism is becoming, with the exception of Sisters Uncut, like a left-wing feminism isn't really in, in ascendancy as much, you know, in, in the discussion. And I, and I think that's been part of the history of feminism. What I would say about my, my personal approach towards feminism, because I'm writing a second book at the moment, is I've read a lot of like second wave feminist texts. And I actually think that like, there was this kind of uh, way of understanding feminism that I came to understand say yeah, like 10 years ago, which was like second wave feminists are all racists and transphobes and like, there's no point reading any of it. And then we've got like third wave feminism, which is better and nice and inclusive. And actually that's not really true. It's like anything, any intellectual movement, it has some really great ideas. It has some less great ideas. You try and like, I believe in engaging with the text. So like, I will read like Germaine Greer, Andrea Dworkin, um, uh, Firestone. There's still like some very interesting ideas that like, that are going to fall out of popularity because they're unpopular in a patriarchy. And there are lots of questions about women's liberation that haven't been answered. And I think that there are lots of quite, yeah, interesting ideas uh, in second wave feminism that it's interesting that gender critical and trans exclusionary feminists, they often claim their heritage from second wave feminism. And I'm like, Maybe have you read it? Because like there's not there, there's there's quite a lot of radical ideas. And one of them, for example, and I, that's why I use second wave feminists a lot in the book, is like for example, Andrea Dawkins. Don't agree with everything that Andrea Dawkins argued, particularly around like pornography and sex work. Although I think people caricature it sometimes. If you read the text, one of the things that's like interesting, what feminism is intellectually always trying to probe at, is like what is the source of oppression for women? But and what a lot of feminism has always got towards is it is that the hierarchy that we might see in general the oppression of women 
as a class by patriarchy, which is often men acting as a class or, or even women acting on behalf of men as a class, you know, that's resting on a binary. Like you can't have the hierarchy unless you've got this really strict idea, we know who the men are and we know who the women are. That's in the interests of patriarchy. And so for me, that affects all trans people because all trans people, whether you're non-binary, whether you're a trans man, whether you're a trans woman, you're basically saying, you know, that gender binary isn't real, that it can be, that it's not inherent, that it can be crossed. And that's why, to me, I think like, I think trans people will always ha have a contributing factor in any kind of feminist movement with teeth, because it's about, you can't, you can't really undo, if you're obsessed with maintaining the categories of man and woman, then you're kind like, they exist, I believe, to have that hierarchy. And when you sort of challenge the existence of those categories or you subvert the existence of those categories or you reveal them to be in fact a very powerful idea but nonetheless um an idea one that could potentially be changed um yeah then then i think i think that's like a powerfully feminist idea and so that's where my starting point from fe to feminism comes and i think it's then it's important too to look at like well, what is the interest of, like for me, feminism is about, um, on a practical level, on like a socialist practical level, feminism is about trying to allocate resources. And I, and I don't see much discussion, mainstream feminist discussion in say mainstream media that's very obsessed with trans women about um, the effect, the impact, the disproportionate impact that austerity had on women. Um, and I think that's relevant because when we talk about like, for example, the, a very classic example in media, right, would be the idea of women's refugees that like this idea of the trans woman in a women's refuge and it's unfair to the cis women and what happens if they have a trauma response and, you know, I, I, and there are some very real questions there. Um, but what is interesting to me is and what's never discussed is the fact that now basically you're at a point where like one in two cisgender women will get turned away from a refuge because women's services have been decimated. The fact that if you know, I can believe that there are women with trauma responses, trans, cis, in, of course there are, in, um, in, in women's services, in refuges. Those, those trauma responses could be better accommodated if these services were properly staffed, if they were properly funded. Why is none of this the discussion? Why is the discussion always this blanket wholesale, we must exclude trans women? As if, even if you excluded all trans women from women's services tomorrow, those women's services would still be like failing to be able to meet the needs of the women that like desperately need them. And then, so there's a question there about like feminism should be a movement again, providing support and care against gender-based violence. And that brings in all trans people because I don't think it, you have to just identify as a woman in order to experience gender-based violence. And I think there's very little discussion. I try and address it in the book about gender-based violence against, um, against trans people and queer people that aren't women. So yeah, so to me, I think the discussion about feminism and and trans women in the uk i think trans women have become a scapegoat for all sorts of feminist anxieties i also think a lot about trauma in the feminist movement because i think tr feminism is a movement of trauma a lot of, of people that will be naturally attracted towards feminism are people that have suffered greatly at the hands of patriarchy and often suffered like huge interpersonal violence whether that's domestic sexual violence etc and i think the trouble is, is when you have a movement that where there's a lot of traumatized people in there traumatized people we have this idea that like traumatized people are just people shivering and crying in a corner no tra trauma is anger trauma is is having responses to things in the present that were actually located in the past and trauma sometimes is also like 
misdirecting your anger at the wrong person. And I often think that what trans women are, are bearing in the UK and in feminist discourse right now is this trauma response for a lot of concerns about the fact that there's been a complete decimation of women's services, of women's benefits, um, of the fact that we haven't really contended with the huge issues of patriarchy like male violence, violence against women and girls. And in fact, those things seem to be intensifying and actually they're intensifying against trans women. And again, I mentioned the murder of Brianna Jai and yet trans women have been picked out by right wing media as a scapegoat because then you can just talk about this particular minority group of women as an antagonist rather than thinking about government as an antagonist, thinking about um, capitalism as an antagonist, thinking about patriarchy as an antagonist in our and thinking about how we might revolutionise society in that way. OK. <laughs> um, we have pretty much run out of time, but um, to end on a slightly more positive note, yeah. if you could bullet point, a lot of people are hopefully going to be galvanised by this talk and by rereading or reading for the first time your book. If you could give a message to cis people who do want to help, who do want to engage, uh, what would be the thing that you think would make a big impact that they can actually meaningfully do? So I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of the ally model um, because um, I would recommend people who are more interested in that point and it's around race is, um, is Emma Dabry, um, What White People Can Do Next from Allyship to Coalition. It's a really short book uh, and, it, and, it, and it analyzes it within the context of like, anti-black racism, but it, it applies here too, which is the problem sometimes with the ally framework, right? Because is that it's about this idea of like helping. And I think what we're at a point of, of realising is that there's something about that power dynamic between the ally and the helped or whatever, is that trans people, I think, probably would agree that they probably feel quite exhausted about constantly appealing for help. Um, and there's a sort of sense of like having to constantly litigate your humanity in public. I think what we need to think about more is like, um, is coalitions. Um, the reason that I've mentioned, like hopefully I've mentioned other struggles other than trans liberation this evening is because I, the greatest hope I feel politically is often like what I made a commitment a couple of years ago was that I was going to attend political demos and marches for causes that don't affect me directly, that like I was a bit burned out going to, to trans and LGBT things, but I was like, you know, what, do, what power do I have to turn up and be a body um, if we're like at a, at a march for um, like victims of police brutality. And, and I think there's that idea of solidarity and of about showing up for each other that for me is the kind of biggest source of hope. So if you're a cis person, I think it is about um, showing up. We've heard, we've, we've heard some great examples like in Bristol at local level. It is about showing up, I think, um, to... Yeah, to demos, to marches, but also like, yeah, getting involved, understanding better, but also I think trying to build kind of coalitions by recognising where your own experience and what perhaps some of the things that you're, you might be campaigning against or what you're fighting against or the things that concern you, the fact that they may include trans people. And also if you're organising or doing other stuff or you're setting something up and there are no trans people there, like if it's about poverty or if it's about racism or if it's about class, then like, there should be trans people there because trans people are really affected. So it's also about seeing, tr trying to see about, you know, including trans people in, w in whatever you're doing. Um, so yeah, for me, I think it's about coalition building and not just thinking of yourself as someone that needs to help out a minority group, but as someone that's kind of in cahoots. 
um, with a, with with trans people towards a sort of similar goal. I'm I'm going to believe that a lot of the people here probably want a more equal society with like some kind of wealth redistribution. I mean, it sounds good, doesn't it? So like, there's there's something there, isn't there? So so I, I think that those are the building blocks about seeing our common interests. I'll leave it there. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Sean. No, thanks. This speaker series is part of the Cable's Beyond the Bullshit campaign, our biggest membership drive yet. It's clear that people are tired of corporate news that thrives on profit and sensationalism and has no integrity. We need members to keep proper journalism alive and show that people-powered media can work. So sign up to be a member today for as little as £1 a month at thebristolcable.org forward slash join. If we could all take our seats again. Well, welcome back, Sean. Hello again. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. I, uh, I'm looking forward to some questions. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of really interesting questions. So my job is basically trying to get through as many of them as I can. We're going to go straight in. So Jasmine asks, I recommend your book to a lot of people trying to get their parents or friends to understand why we face transphobia in the UK. And I understand how important it is to make people understand that trans rights are their rights and that we are in pain that definitely affects them too. But I see more and more queer people becoming exhausted by this. Do you think we're at a desperate point in history where curating our anger and pain to educate masses of cis, straight, and in my case, white people, is actually sapping the little energy we have to protect our communities? And do you think there's a way of protecting the queer community without pleading for our safety and security from those ignorant of our plight? Yeah, big question. And I, I um, yeah, thank you for that. I, I also see people um, uh, getting burnt out and tired as well. And I think that's, that's very real. And I don't think it's anyone's obligation. Um, you know, for me, for me, like writing, what I try to do writing a book, right, is that I, I mean, that's a job. That's my work. I got paid to write a book. Um, and I did that partly, hopefully to like, be a, movements are bigger. I'm not saying like I, I want to like, preface that by saying I don't think my book is the you know, but it's a tool to assist conversations that hopefully like saves some other trans person uh, some like labour that's like completely unpaid and that they don't really want to do. So I, I think there is a role for it. Otherwise, I wouldn't have done it. Um, the problem I think we have is that so many trans people feel. Um, a sense of burden, responsibility to to do that, and and not just trans people. I think like uh, members of many minorities to do that at large, and and there's a huge expectation of doing it. Now, I think like realistically, there probably are going to be some situations in which people have to do it in order to lead a livable life and and, and to do it safely. But I I do think that there's a bigger question about resisting. And, and that's something that we can do both collectively and individually. And I have to work on it in myself is resisting. Um, we've sort of been, I hate everyone uses the word gaslighting now. I know it's overused, but like, so let me think um, of a better word. I'm a writer. What am I going to say? Uh, that like, well, we've, we've effectively been conditioned as trans people in a, in a cis normative society to always have to advocate for our own existence. The minute that you're like basically identified as a certain gender when you're born or in your prenatal scan, that gives you 
a task of advocacy that you didn't ask for from the beginning. And so like, and there it continues. And I, and I do mean that quite seriously. Like, so I think we're conditioned pretty much from our earliest memories often to, to have to be advocates for ourselves. And so there's a way in which I think, yeah, there can be, there can be a huge, I don't know, in ourselves, a mechanism towards doing that. And I think it's something we have to challenge in ourselves, to be honest, just to say like, actually, kind of what is in this for me and my community and particularly when it's stuff like media representation, particularly in like political media and stuff like I, I described debates, or whether it's um, unpaid work on various like, NHS advisory boards, or whether it's like being part of your staff LGBT network, where they're like, great, you're trans, you can be head of the LGBT network, all this extra work unpaid. Like there's actually, there's actually, there's actually, um, I think we should be being able to empower each other to say no. Um, do I think there's a moment where it is detracting? Yes, I do. And I do. I, I think it's hard sometimes. I think there can be so much attention because we do live in a society that places cis people's anxieties ahead of trans people's needs um, to, to, to pander to those anxieties first and to often think about how we represented what do cis people think of me at large. And that is a task like it's exhausting. Like you're never you're never going to be able to control that anyway. And it does distract. And I, and I think that can even happen within activism sometimes. You know, personally, I see some forms of activism. Like, I, I just think the obsession with JK Rowling, we've got to let it go. Like, honestly, like, <laughs> there are more important things in terms of, like, what are affecting trans people now um, than someone that, like, unfortunately, it's just so, like, I'm sure that there are things that people, perhaps it, who work in media and publishing, could be, can be doing within those industries. But I think there are like some certain sexy media topics that seem to be like conflicts. I even think the conflict with gender critical feminists gets so much airtime when you actually think about housing, when you think about uh, mental health support. These are things that w the more energy that it's designed to sap from us, the more that we don't spend time on our own communities. And I quote in the book, I'll finish on this. I quote in the book, Toni uh, Morrison, who said about racism, that the function of racism is distraction. It keeps you deliberately and people, keeps people of color from doing their work, doing what they need to do in their community, doing, needing, wanting to do what they want in terms of creativity, in terms of just leading a livable life. It's designed to keep having you advocate for yourself. And, and that there's a point where it's actually quite transgressive and politically important to be like, no, I refuse to play in your little game. And I think that's the same here. Um, but knowing how and when to do that's a case of trial and error. And I think it depends on context. So that's kind of my general answer. But yeah, it, 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 it's, it's tough because the answer is like it, it depends on the specific circumstance and kind of how much energy an individual or, or community has. Thank you. And the next question is somewhat related around uh, media. This is from Sarah. Um, so Sarah asks, what do you make of the seemingly recent social media trend of followers demanding that individual public figures need to speak out on a particular subject in the name of accountability? Almost as though individuals are the same as mainstream media outlets, for example, creators that don't usually make content on current affairs subjects to demand that they speak out against things like Hamas. Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. I think... Um this could be a whole other talk. I mean, accountability in the way that it's, it's, it's wielded on social media. It's something I've been doing a lot of thinking about because, yeah, I don't want to get distracted, but like accountability often on social media, I think when we actually look at like what accountability is, I think it's something that can't be um, 
demanded of people. It's something that people tend to have to, you know, if, for it to be real, it's like asking someone for an apology. It's kind of like, oh, I'm sorry, well, great. Like, it feels a bit fake. Accountability, when you look at what it means, is actually, it's, it's often a kind of community process of bringing someone to a point where they can, to start to be accountable for like their own behavior in the world. And I think what in social media often can look like is, um, well, in its worst form, harassment, other forms just kind of trying to extract responses from people. But with regards to, yeah, demanding that people comment on certain things, I mean, it, yeah, it depends on when you're talking about social media creators, influencers, whatever. It does sort of depend on, on perhaps, you know, a lot of these people, if it's their job, they're making money. It's often if they're presenting a certain way and there is a lot, there is a bit of money in presenting yourself as like an activist online that champions progressive causes. And potentially if there's like a contradiction there, I think there can be reasonable questions asked about, um, about it. But you, you used an example of someone that's not doing that. Like I... I don't know, do I, do I need to know what like, Molly May thinks about Hamas? No, not really. Um, like, I, but, at the, but at the same time, I think, like, I think that there is a question about that we are in a time where what we're seeing, and, I, and personally I'm seeing, it, I have seen examples of people who have built their brand identity, which is a, is a, is a commodifiable asset that they're making money off, off a certain view of the world, that like, when it's getting tough, they're oddly silent. When it's like, no longer aligned with power, they're oddly silent. And one of the things that we capitalism loves is to co-opt um, radical ideas, transgressive ideas, uh, and make them more palatable and defang them. And I think the thing is, is if you're someone that's building quite a big platform about that, there is, there is a reasonable question. Now, demanding accountability, I don't particularly think personally harassing creators online is actually a very ethical way of doing anything at all. I increasingly dislike it as I get older and I, and I reflect on, on it um, as something that I've seen pretty much like my whole life on the internet. But I think there's a question about whether or not who we give our attention to. There's a difference between divesting from perhaps people that we might think are presenting a certain kind of politics, but actually aren't living up to that and directing our attention, our resources, and particularly sometimes, you know, our money or whatever, or our financial support away from them. Like we're all entitled to do that. And I think it's important too to have like a critical eye on culture. I don't, I don't think like just because someone is like on social media or whatever, I don't, I don't think that there, that there isn't, um, you can just completely say, well, it's just because they're not a politician, it's not important. However, I do think sometimes we can get very focused on our own online worlds about people, like I mentioned earlier, with very relatively little power because they're just a content creator. And again, that's like very useful for the ruling class to focus on the fact that you're like angry with someone that hasn't spoken up on this issue or you're kind of like constantly trying to correct someone who um, who perhaps is showing like a, a bit of kind of uh, inconsistency in their activism versus like the, the larger fight. Uh, and I think like also we have to allow space as well for the fact that people are human and people are learning. And I also don't think social media is a very good place to be learning in real time about new topics. And lots of people will unfortunately be new to quite progress it. I think this is a problem the left has is that is that you can't expect everyone to arrive when we when we live in like a society with quite a right right slanting media, quite a liberal forms of education and a political class. People are going to arrive with quite bad politics, and you have to you have to kind of allow space for learning. And I do think social media robs people of that, it forces people into very immediate positions and not and, and fear of being exiled, fear of getting it wrong. 
And I don't think that's necessarily healthy. I think a lot of my political development and stuff has grown off in offline spaces, which is why I, I mentioned like protests and demos earlier, but it doesn't have to be those. So yeah, I don't know. Those are some reflections on that question. It's not a yes or no answer, is it? I think it depends on specific circumstances. But for me, I, I think it's fine to like ex to um, challenge people and critique people, um, particularly pa people who are maybe making lots of money. I don't think it's okay necessarily to engage in online vitriol just because we're angry and disempowered. Mm. And um, last sort of media focus question from Claudia. They say, miss your Navarro, would you ever return? <laughs> <laughs> Also, Claudia is kind of, I, I feel like now, at this stage of my transition, I look like a Claudia. Like, Sean was when I was a they, them. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm kind of like, I'm not really serving, like, mon like Sean. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm, I'm giving kind of quite, anyway. Um, so anyway, Claudia, I love your name. Um, I, uh, Navara, yes. Well, I, so I, I, um, co I was co-hosting last year on Navara Media. That's one thing that I think is very important. Like, I did it because... Navarra Media is obviously like a left-wing outlet, but I thought it was just really important to have a trans person talking about the daily news. That's what I often was doing, was discussing the news. Mm. And it was, it was important even for Navarra as a left-wing, they, they had like a little bit of a problem of wheeling in a trans person to talk about trans issues. You know, God bless them. I, I love everyone that works there, <laughs> but like they did have a problem with that. And I think it's really important to have like trans people integrated into the media that we're not just talking about trans issues. Like, you know, I say this is someone that wrote a book called The Transgender Issue, but I do think I, do think I did that almost to like close that door. So, so yeah, so I enjoyed being on Navarra. Will I be on it again? Um, yeah, maybe. Like I sort of couldn't hack the YouTube comments for a little while. Like it's it's hard seeing like right-wing YouTube comments a lot of the time. So I'm very into taking mental health breaks at the moment, but I probably will return a lot of attention. Right. <laughs> Exciting. And now Diana. So Diana asks, how should we engage with conservative trans activists such as Buck Angel, who is very vocal about denying trans youth access to hormone blockers, for example? Hmm, I mean, like Buck Angel in particular, there's not really much that can be done there. I think what, <laughs> what, what I think, what I think, what I think, here's, what I'll, here's how I'll answer that question. I, I hope it does answer the kind of spirit of your question is, again, it's something I've been thinking about a lot, is there are trans people certainly of an older generation who have a very particular understanding of transness that's very different. Well, transness itself is a dynamic thing. A trans person 40 years ago who went through what would have been called a sex change like 40 years ago, well, how they will have conceived of themselves and their gender will be very different to how I do. And I can already see because like trans years are like dog years. They're like, so long. They're like, <laughs> if I speak to like, obviously some, like I, you know, if I speak to some like 20 year old trans people, I'm like, wow, the, the kids are doing gender differently. I'm, I'm like, and, and the thing is, is that like, there's, you know, the difference is that I'm, try I'm trying to always keep a flexibility. Unfortunately, perhaps I think a lot of um, older trans people didn't keep that reflexivity. Now, I think like, I don't think that excuses anything that like where you use a huge public platform to potentially do, you know, do damage to younger trans people. But what I would say is that I think like if we use Buck Angel as a kind of representative of a certain thing is that I think what could have happened there and, and it's and it's easier to see in hindsight is about trying to bring people along one of the problems with with social media polarization and i and i and i've witnessed this a lot now is that the more i think it's always better to try and i think people did try from what i've heard with buck angel so there are some people that just will not engage but i think 
human psychology is such that if someone gets bombarded online or whatever by being told they're a bad person, they're a harmful person, whatever, it doesn't actually make them soften towards the position that they're being told. They feel under attack. And often what happens in that moment is we're seeing a lot of people recruited to, you know, far right movements, to gender critical feminism, to anti-trans hostility, to anti-LGBT hostility towards racist movements. Now, you could say, well, fuck those people because, you know, you shouldn't be. But the reality is, is that I think we have to look at like trying to reduce harm. And I think there is, and, and I can't answer this in a sort of like short answer, but what I'm trying to think about at the moment is about how we arrest that process and try and get people when they're in a more suggestible stage to have better, more constructive conversations. Mm. Um, and I think some of that has to start with being a little bit empathetic, even though it can be hard sometimes, towards where people might be coming from, rather than just thinking like, they're coming from a place of harm. Now with Buck Angel, that's a very specific person. But I think like certainly where I've encountered some views of older trans people, I try and think, what were the conditions that you transitioned under? What were the messages you internalized about being trans? And what does that kind of, like, how has that resulted in the way that you react perhaps to other trans people who, who are saying that actually uh, gender is much more fluid than you thought, or that like, you know, there doesn't need to be medical gatekeeping or, you know, everything, all that trauma and pain that you went through, like, actually, we don't need that. Like, for some people, that can be quite um, threatening. And so, like, I try to always have a little bit of empathy for the opponent to think about when I'm trying to do persuasive writing is how do I reach them? I try and reach them by understanding where they come from. And rarely there are obviously some really like there are some scumbags out there, but most people, when they're like coming from a reactionary position, it's because they think they're protecting something usually. Next up, someone asks, uh... It's been reported that the numbers of LGBTQ plus venues have been declining across the UK. What's your thoughts on the importance of having dedicated queer spaces? I mean, I, I, uh, very important. I love um, LGBT clubs. I used to love LGBT nightlife. I loved it a little bit too much. That's why I'm drinking Diet Coke now. <laughs> uh, no, in all seriousness, I mean, I still do. I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem. And obviously, like, with the pandemic, I mean, I often think with the pandemic, Again, like this is more for the cis people in the audience because trans people know it, but like I, I find it kind of fascinating that there's like a whole wave of different of different trans generations and there's like a whole like post-pandemic trans because a lot a lot of trans people transitioned in lockdown. But um, one thing I think about, especially with young queer people, is that like, yeah, the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly lockdowns, like it was a fatal blow to a lot of queer venues that were already struggling. But also there was like a, a certain kind of cohort of younger queer people that didn't really get to discover their identities by going you know, and it doesn't have to be going to clubs. It can be other forms of, of queer spaces. But I think that's a huge shame because we just talked so much this evening about the toxicity of the internet. I don't think it's good to just solely find community online. It can be a good stepping stone, but there isn't a substitute, I'm afraid to say, and sorry, this makes me old fashioned, for like in-person community. And there are flaws in those spaces but I think um, queer venues are a huge part of that. And what's important about them, and I think this goes back right back to the history of Pride, to the history of like Stonewall itself, right? Stonewall was a bar that was like under attack and that kicked off like the entire Western LGBT movement. And I think there's a really important kind of conversation between kind of que like queer sociality. God, that sounds wanky, but like queer, queer, um, yeah, queer sociality, queer parties, like hanging out, having fun, being sexy, being free, and our politics. Like, there's something kind of very dry to me and, and, and sad about the idea that you do politics separate from where you, like, 
um, like, I don't know, dance, have sex, get off with people, whatever. Like th these things are like, they're, they're intimately bound up with each other. And I think there needs to be kind of a prioritization of that. And I think queer spaces are also, they're also like hugely important to me personally, because often like when I was first transitioning like I mean like obviously certain like queer venues were the only places like before I like officially came out and like told everyone I'm going to be changing my pronouns or whatever like there was a lot of like playing with gender in a way and there was only certain like venues and places where that was like permissible without the kind of threat of violence or as intense a threat of violence and so I think it's like it's a vitally important thing and I think it's like important not to just think of this as like a leisure activity like it's it's very important to community and to politics so, yeah, I mean, like, I, I hope that, like, you know, people will regenerate nightlife. I know that there are a lot of people who, who do a lot of work in that area. The next couple of questions around feminism and transfeminism. Um, so Sabrina asks, would you consider the transgender issue a transfeminist text in the tradition of Julia Serrano, Emi Koyama and other figures? I mean, there's no way to answer this without sounding egotistical, is there? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, like, look, that's what I was aiming for. I was aiming for, like, um, you know, the writers you mentioned. And, like, like that's the thing. Was when, uh, for example, like, Whipping Girl by Julia Serrano. That was often the text I noticed that was being told, like, given to people who said, oh, my mum's a gender-critical feminist now because she's been on the internet or whatever. And the thing is, <laughs> Julia Serrano was writing in, like, 2002. That's so long ago. And she's writing about a specific transsexual experience. And I was like, you know, it's not... For what we're facing today, and it's very about the body, it's very about identity, and it's still a really important book, but what I was trying to do was to think about, like, how do we create a text that captures where we're at now yeah, what I was trying to do was to contribute towards a canon, and I hope it will continue after this book because I shouldn't be the final voice on it. Like the, the white middle class trans woman, like all the stuff that we talked about earlier, shouldn't be the final voice in terms of it. Like it's just supposed to be like an iteration of a conversation that goes on. I just felt that there was like a missing piece for where we're at now in terms of situating trans politics within. Like I kept hearing when I used to do Navarra videos, like like old school socialists, like old school white male socialists being like, this isn't socialism, this is indulgence, this has got nothing to do with class, this has got nothing to, like it, it has every fucking thing to do with class. And I wanted to be able to situate trans liberation within like a broader left-wing politics. Um, and you know, and that work continues. So yeah, I hope that it contributes slightly to a body of, uh, of trans feminist literature, but also that it contributes to a body of like, I see it as much as a, as a left-wing text too, you know, as it is a sort of trans text, because I think those things are inter interlinked. I hope that answers it. Thank you. And now Art. Art asks, um, me and my friend have also been reading second wave feminism. We think there's a lot that trans feminists can learn. What other lessons do you think there are from there? I mean, it's just like when you actually read those texts, I just think where, where we've got to in terms of what people like, you know, obviously, I think what a lot of people think is, is you know, is that, is that classic divide between equality um, and liberation. And, like, yes, of course, it's, like, that's the trouble. Is there's such an attack that even, like, holding the line in terms of, like, women and, and, and minority marginalised genders, equality is so tough. But what I found interesting about, like, when you read, and, I, yeah, as I say, I've read quite a lot of it for my second book, um, Second Wave Feminism, it's like these ideas about like to what extent, you know, is the body a determinant of like destiny? So like you have like um, 
writers like Sherwin Firestone basically saying like pregnancy is barbaric. We should be put, we should be getting artificial wombs. Like why are we still doing this? <laughs> Which like when you think about what like the current transphobic feminism is so like what it calls itself feminism, but it's so essentialist to this idea that like you're not a woman if you can't be a mother. Well, unfortunately, that ties very much to this idea that being a woman and being a mother are interlinked, which leads to like all sorts of uh, right wing imaginations of the fact that like, you know, women therefore should be mothers at patriarchy's behest and they shouldn't have a choice in the matter. Like that all follows a continuum. And of course, like what second wave feminists were seeing was that like that through line and saying, well, how do we interrupt that? They're all like, the Firestone example of like the artificial wombs, that can seem a little bit far-fetched, but the fact that that was even being discussed, or like the question of like, who is a woman like uh, Monique Wittigs, the role of a woman was so bound up with heteronormativity. She was like, lesbians aren't women. Like if you said that now, that would be such a, like if I said that, that would be such a controversial thing to say, but that was like a lesbian radical feminist saying like, you know, our understanding of what it is to be a woman is so enwrapped with men and patriarchy and being submissive and a wife and a mother that if you choose to lead a life that isn't like that and you're gender non-conforming in some way, then perhaps the category of woman isn't supposed to fit you. And that sounds awfully a lot like, like a lot of non-binary discourse. It's just, it's just slightly different language. Andrea Dworkin saying the fact that like, she said, she said that male and female, man and woman are words that we have yet because as yet we have no others. So there are these like quite radical ideas about the fact that like, what is a liberated future? It's really hard to imagine a world without gender. It's like, like imagining a world without capitalism. What I think is interesting about like the kind of radical feminist of the second wave is they're really engaging with some of those questions. Um, and I find that really interesting. See, I definitely recommend read it with a critical eye, like, you know, just as much as there's stuff there that lends itself to like thinking about trans and some queerer discourse. There's also a lot there that like perhaps hasn't stood the test of time as well that, you know, is ignorant of kind of critiques from black feminism, from indigenous feminism. So like and from disabled feminism as well. So I, th I think it, I read it with like a critical lens, but I don't think it's like. So I, re I read Jermaine Greer like a, like a lot and I've been using her a lot in my second book because it's not like just because she's a transphobe doesn't mean like everything she said was um, wrong about womanhood and, and patriarchy. Well, we have one last question. Um, this is from Madeline. On a more sort of positive note, looking at the future, what advice would you give to the next generation of trans writers? Oh, I mean, like, top line is like, just write about what you want to write about. Like, obviously you are, like, this is how I see it, right? Is that I'm a trans writer, sure, and I'm proud to be a trans writer. But like, I can say that like here, because I understand what that means. And, I, and I've had ample space to say that. But like, for example, when I've like, tried to go on media, like on BBC or on television or whatever, and they put trans writer or trans author underneath me on the screen, I mean, I go off, like, honestly, I've, like, threatened to walk out. I mean, I kind of love doing it. It's, like, diva vibes. <laughs> but, like, the, but, the re but the reason being is because, you know, that is, is about whether or not being, you know, so even the idea of being a trans writer, right, is that you are a writer first and foremost. And then, like, like any writer, you take through with you, like, your entire experience. And being trans is a huge part of that. And that gets, like, what I'm always trying to do, and I would say to any, like, younger trans writer, is allow your transness. There's so many, like, amazing things about being trans in terms of the fact that it gives you a different perspective on society to, like, like the vast majority of the population. We have such fucking surreal experiences that are kind of, like, hilarious, that, like, give us, like, such a, like, rich... Um, basis in order to create is to like allow your transness to be like an expression of that not and to try and not allow it to be something that like pens you in because that is ultimately unfortunately what 
like a lot of other people will try to do. And I think there's like such a belief that you have to, yeah, make work that's explicitly about transness or about transness at all, or that you have to do like anti-transphobia work, or you have to like going back to the very first question about you have to like try and work with changing cis, like that anxiety response. I have to try and like change public opinion. I have to do that. No, you don't. To prioritize yourself as a creative, to try and prioritize yourself. Do you think like, Philip Roth thinks about like, like, you know, he's not sitting there thinking I'm going to write the next white male novelist, novel, like great white male novel. It's like, no, like, you know, he, he thinks about what he wants to write about, what concerns him. So basically, I guess my, my message there would be like, just write about what you want to write about. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sean. You've been absolutely incredible. I think I can speak for everyone here to say that it's been like inspiring, thought provoking. Um, we've all probably learned a lot and taken a lot from it. So um, can we give Sean a huge round of applause? Thank you. Thank you. Join us for our next event, What Racism Can Tell Us About Journalism and Power, with Gary Young, who won the 2023 Orwell Prize for Journalism. The talk will take place on the 24th of January at the station, with the podcast coming soon after. Find tickets at thebristolcable.org forward slash events with discounted tickets for members. Thanks for listening. <laughs>